Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. It's, a, it's an honor to have Carla Ferguson here on the show. And she is CEO and founder of the Yielding Group. And, and, and she specializes in fine arts and high value items. We're going to learn more about that. But she really says she's an art activist. I want to hear what that means. Carla, <laughs> good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What is an art activist? Well, I, I'm a storyteller. Okay. So I tell stories and I try to promote ideas and thoughts that are not very mainstream that have been historically. I tell stories that have been marginalized throughout the centuries in art. I st tell stories about women, about the LGBT community, stories about black people, stories about um, our political landscape, socioeconomic issues. And, you know, I force people to, to really take a look at society and their role in upholding certain norms. And uh, I, that's really my thing. Well, that's a good fit for the show. So if you, if you know, we Disruption Now is all about disrupting common narratives and constructs, mm -hmm. particularly around people of color and the marginalized. So you're a perfect fit for okay. the show. So there you go. That's, <laughs> why I, that's why I'm glad you came on. Uh, so I want to talk about your path. So uh -huh. you... You weren't always this art curator and art activist. You you are an attorney by trade. I am an attorney. I'm licensed and all yeah. of that good stuff. Um, that really was out of necessity, I would say. Right. Um, I am an immigrant. Okay. A Jamaican background. I got some Jamaican in me too. Yeah. See, and, you, and you know, you don't say to your Jamaican parents, "Hey, I'm gonna go to art school." <laughs> <laughs> they were like, "What is? What do you what, mean what, art school? What are you gonna do exactly? Yeah, how like, are you gonna, how you gonna, how you gonna eat? How are you gonna eat?" And you know, so I would take a lot of art classes. I did all my art histories and studio practice, everything. And eventually, I said to myself, "Okay, well, it's time to kind of, you know, get decide, serious, get serious, and yeah. please, please the parents in a sense." And I uh, pursued a degree in political science and international relations. And from there, I went to law school at Tulane. Right. Which was a great thing for what I do now because Tulane's actually um, a big school for, you know, if you want to be an agent, but right. generally a sports agent or entertainment. So what I decided to do is blend art and the law and become an agent for art. An and for agent artists. for art. That's awesome. Exactly. But I want to I want to I want to talk about how initially it was probably difficult because mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people it's hard to get outside of the expectations of what others believe you should do. Absolutely. So I'm sure when you first entered into the art space, you had your parents or whoever mm -hmm. probably said, "Why are you going to do that when you have a safe, secure path to being an attorney? You can just be." moderately miserable all your life. They wouldn't say it that way, but that's probably how you felt. Like, so how do you, how did you go about mm -hmm. rejecting the outside influence of how others thought you should be or the path they said you should go on? Well, um, since birth, I've always been a rebel. So, you know, the idea was to be a rebel with a cause. So my, my parents actually were pretty easygoing. They just kind of watched and said, you know what? She always seems to land on her feet. So we're just right. going to let her just do what she's doing. Now, it was more to prove to my social circles, society, people around yeah. me that this was feasible. And the only way to do it, to do that, was to actually do the work right. and to show them the, the finished product. So I would, I produced shows and I would invite as many people as I knew. I started with just, you know, friends and family and anyone that was willing to listen and they would show up. 
they would instantly connect with what it was that I was trying to, to deliver the messages and they would support by buying the work right. and allowing me to fund more shows and to continue growing in the space. And I've been doing that now for over 12 years. Wow. Yeah. You have any uh, moments of imposter syndrome or of, uh, of doubt? You know what? I have that just about every day because no two days are the same. No two questions. It's, it's always different. Right. You know, every day you're meeting new artists or new new ideas. So you can never say, oh, I'm an expert at this because it's constantly changing. And I think that also as a woman, you know, we're always the slowest to to accept that we happen to be experts in a particular thing. You know, men go in there with confidence. I can do this. This is who I am. Yes. Sometimes too much. But go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know anything. But they said, no, people give him the world. They said, he sounds like he believes it. Absolutely. But women, we're kind of like, we're constantly needing to prove ourselves. Right. We're always faced with that glass ceiling. So how'd you get over, like, so how'd you get over that? In particular, I'd like to hear about a particular doubt or something that maybe shook you for a minute. Mm -hmm. And you got, and, and talk about how you got past that because, People view entrepreneurs once they're successful, they, they, they only see the success. They're like, okay, yeah, they just got up there, maybe they have some opportunities. And opportunities is a part of it, but it's not, it's not the only journey. There is the other part where there, there are obstacles. Absolutely. Talk about the obstacles, the failures, whatever you want to say, and, how, and whatever one might stick out to, if you want, to stick out in your mind when you met an obstacle you didn't expect. Uh-huh. And then you had to figure out how to adjust and maneuver or get through that obstacle. You know, I would say that I sometimes can be a bit introverted and okay. shy. And so going out and introducing myself to new people right. can be a bit nerve wracking. And I remember when I first moved to, back to Miami, I grew up here, but then I left for university and all that kind of stuff. And I moved to, to France and then I came back after quite a number of years. So it was right. almost like an entire new new city. Right. I didn't really know that many people anymore. And the kind of work that I was doing, I, I really didn't know anyone. So one of my first things was to say, okay, I'm going to go and join the museum and meet like-minded people that are right. involved in the arts. And I just remember walking to that first, you know, event and thinking to myself, oh my goodness. Right. Like, I don't look like any of these people. Right. You know, age-wise, color-wise, there were so many things that were completely different from the people that were in front of me. And I just remember saying, okay, just, you know, smile and just, just be yourself. Right. Said, What's the worst they can do? Just yeah. hate me, <laughs> you know, but I'll still keep going. Right. Um, also, I think just my, my basic background is just you, someone like me always has to fight. Right. You know, you're Explain. not going to be instantly accepted. Right. I'm a black woman. Yeah. You know, um, I show up for orientation at law school and, you know, I was asked by, you know, t- various types of staff members, like even cleaning people. Oh, uh, I, maybe you're looking for that direction. Yeah. Like, are you really coming to this law school? Right. And the law school that I attended, it was only uh, integrated maybe two, two generations prior. Right. So they didn't have a lot of people of color and or or women you know, of color, especially. So, so being there and in the South, it was in Louisiana. It right. was just not a typical thing to see someone like me walking in and saying, oh, I'm from this little island, Jamaica. You know, I got crazy questions thrown at me. What's the craziest you can remember? 
They asked me what we wear in Jamaica. And this is What'd you so, say? <laughs> What'd you say? I was like, you know, the coconuts and the... <laughs> I mean, the I oh, was, we, we don't wear clothes in Jamaica. Like, yeah. What kind of question is well, that? I have no idea. Yeah. You know? and it, but You get the Louisiana. hair question, too? Oh, the hair question. All, can we touch your hair? Can I touch your hair? And some oh, don't even ask, right? Just touch yeah. the hair. Where's this hair come from? I was like, right out of my head. <laughs> you know, it was just... And, and, you know, really and truly, because, okay, my, my background as a uh, Caribbean islander... It's very mixed. I mean, right, we had sure. a lot of cultures on that one little island, and people were mixing. So I don't maybe look like what they envision right? when they think of, oh, a black woman. Sure. Right? But Louisiana was a little different because you got the Creole, yeah. the Creole culture there. And so, you know, they were kind of more, oh, yeah, yeah, she's sure. one of, you know, she's sure. like us kind of thing. But it was, those kind of things were challenging. Going to law school was challenging. I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, law school was challenging. I, we can yeah. talk talk to that. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't, yeah. That was not easy. I mean, that first day I showed up to Torts, and I was like, what did I get myself into? Yeah, the, the nearly everybody huge. that does law school says that. Yeah, but. And, and the rougher part, how long were you an attorney? Um, well, I never stopped being one oh, okay. since, you know, since I finished. So it's I've always just kept the license going. But you don't you don't you don't practice in bill hours um, or none of that. No, 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 no. Yeah. Not in the so how long were you sense. in the in the trenches and doing that work? Um, I, I can let me just speak from my experience mm-hmm. very, very very quickly. And uh, I think it sounds like you have a similar one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was fired from my first big firm job, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me of because uh, it because I hated the job, loved the money. Money was good, right? Mm-hmm. It, was, mm-hmm. it, was, it was the most money I ever seen in my life. It was the first job I had out of college. But I was so miserable. I mean, it was miserable for so many reasons. And then I looked up and saw that all the partners were miserable, too. Yeah. So this was so the path that I was going to be on, it, if I was successful, was to have more money and be miserable. Like, I said, this can't be the only path to success. So uh, thank God I'm able to do things that I'm actually passionate about. So... Was there something that forced you to actually take this leap? Was there some type of transition in your life that, that, that said, okay, this is the time to do it and you do it now? I mean, was there anything personally, professionally that said, because for me, that's, that was part of it then. I said, okay, well, I need to figure out, do something. You know what, there was. Um, during law school, I worked for the Innocence Project. Oh, wow. And I was wow. with them for about two years, two and a half years, something like that. And the time that I was there, we actually um, were able to release two men who had served, I think, 30 years. And when I saw exactly what we went through just to secure their release based on innocence, and there was actual evidence of the innocence, but in the state of Louisiana, they had some kind of crazy law. I'm not sure if it's still there. <clears throat> Might be. It's yeah. Louisiana's Correct. challenging. Correct. And it was this kind of a... Uh, oh, so is Florida, you, by the way, in some ways. But go ahead. <laughs> the South. The <laughs> yes. deep sixes, yes. you know? But the, the rule was you have to prove innocence in order to petition your case to have the DNA tested to show that you were. Wait, wait. So before you can test the DNA, yes. you have to prove innocence. How do you do that? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's exactly what the DNA it. is supposed that's, to do. That's the point. That's the point of science. Exactly. Wow. So, you know, so I was like, okay, I'm up against a system that is designed for you to fail. Correct. All right. And during my time at Innocence Project, I, I wrote a, ha- a handbook in order to give to various prisoners at Angola so that they could use it and kind of be their own jailhouse lawyer. Oh, wow. Because, okay, we worked on a shoestring budget, 
Yeah. It's not the Innocence Project that we know today. And I'm not saying they have more money, but they're more uh, They have more money than you had then when you first started. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> for sure. But um, so we would have to give them these kind of informational how-to step-by-step right. if they want to try and preserve evidence, you know, things like that. And I just remember thinking the system is completely, completely upside down. Once you're in the system, it is extremely difficult to get out. No, yep, the system tries to keep you there. It is designed to keep you. Yep. There's no rehabilitation. No. It's strictly punishment, throw away the key, you're there. And 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 uh, monetization off of the, Abs- off the person. Absolutely, it's slavery. People don't understand that. It, absolutely it is. Yeah. It's a way to keep exploiting and taking money from the poor. Correct. Because, you know, anyone who has uh, either been incarcerated or had a loved one incarcerated mm-hmm. knows the just ridiculous costs you have to pay. Yes. And and then you have to prove you're, you're indigent to be able to even get paper yep. to, to write, you know, and half the time you're not very literate, some of, some of the people that are incarcerated. And there's just no chance that they're getting out based on what's available. Right. So I just remember with all of that and when I graduated and thinking how... This, this can't be the way to, to fix this. It's too slow. I can do one case, two cases. Maybe, I, maybe we can uh, release or exonerate one or two people in yeah. 10 years, but there's got to be a better way. And that's really when the idea came to me to put a spotlight on the system. So I started creating exhibitions around police brutality, around wrongful incarceration, wrongful conviction around the idea that once you are in the system, and if you do happen to get out, good luck being able to feed yourself after. Absolutely. Right? Um, the system keeps you there. You go to apply for a job, the first thing they're gonna ask you, you know, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Yep. Once they see that, you're finished, Yeah. right? So. Can you think of any story in particular that moved you during that time? Like the particulars um, of that, like someone um, who was, um, going through a hard time with the, with the criminal justice system and, and what really moved you. Yeah, I mean, you. there was a client of ours, and I remember when he was released, you know, life was so difficult on the outside after having been right. locked up that he was trying to do anything to get locked up again. Wow. And he was originally innocent. Wow. But he didn't know how to function. You, he was tried as an adult. So he's been incarcerated since he was, what, 17? Yeah. He comes out, he's in his 40s. He doesn't know what to do. Sure. He's missed everything. Yeah. And for him, the safety was... He knew. He knew, he knew prison. He knew prison. He knew how to operate it. Correct. He's Correct. in this world he doesn't even understand. Mm-hmm. And, and wanted to go back. Yeah. And you had a world that has no empathy no. For, your, for your situation. Zero empathy. I remember when they released the two, the two gentlemen, um, the clothes that they released them in. Yeah or whatever they found. One guy had a shirt that was like a midriff, and the pants were falling off, and I think they gave him like bus fare. Yeah, we're like, sorry, we locked you up and you weren't actually Mm -hmm. guilty of the crime you committed. And it was barely bus fare that would get him home. And and a garbage bag with whatever other belongings he had managed to accumulate. And you talk about those stories in your art. I do, I do. And you you actually have artists that depict that yes. journey and and that was the interesting part actually with what I was doing because there were there are quite a few artists that do depict those stories but they don't get museum shows they don't get museum shows they don't get gallery shows and that's something we talked about so you're a curator mm-hmm. but you didn't go through a path of having to go through no. uh, to a museum to being accepted by those 
quote unquote institutional players. Absolutely not. You just created your own path. Mm-hmm. Talk to people about how they, if they wanted to create their own path as a curator in art, particularly being a person of color, what, 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 what would be the advice you would give them? What are the top two or three things they should do? Well, for one, if you want to talk about art and show art, you need to secure a space. Okay. You know, um, here in Miami, a lot of groups have been fortunate. I was fortunate that I had my own space. Right. Right. But a lot of uh, groups have been fortunate enough to team up sometimes with, you know, various developers and property owners and take empty spaces and hang an entire show. Right. And that works really well for them. But also you have to you have to fine tune your story. Like, what is it that you're trying to add to the art world? Right. What is it that needs to be said? You know, um, I'm constantly challenging the status quo. So if it's the black figure in art, which has historically, you know, kind of been on the sidelines and not really held up in fine art, um, my part of my thing was to be able to depict black people on these canvases. At the time that I started curating the shows, I noticed that a lot of um, shows that would include black painters were actually abstract. So you'd have these geometric patterns, the audience would look at it, and they they couldn't tell that it was done by a person of color. Right. Right? You couldn't feel any of that. And that was probably intentional. Absolutely. Because you get, because sometimes people will make an assumption Mm -hmm. because of who you are. Uh, so I interviewed Chauncey Mayfield, mm-hmm. and he, he, he talked about going into business, and he built up $250 million in assets before people even knew he was black. Ex- because, you know, people made the assumption or wouldn't give him the opportunity because he was black. So I imagine that was part of the artist's mm-hmm. point of view and why yes. they did that. Yes, and they were able to hide their right. identity and have the work speak for itself. But you did the opposite. I did the opposite. You did the opposite of that. You, you yeah. actually... I look for figurative work. And... Did you run across any, was it hard at first because people didn't understand that space or didn't want to support that space because they hadn't before? Yeah, yeah, it was because, you know, the idea is that people have to buy. Yes. And, and people are buying now. You're very, you're very yes, successful they, now. They, they, they buy now. But the problem at the time, you know, I had a, a gentleman come up to me during one of a tour that I was giving at my gallery. And he was just kind of okay, but how do I live with this image? And I was like, what do you mean? The way that you live with any other image, you know? Right. I said, would it be such a problem if the nude or were a white woman? But in this case, it was a black woman. Sure. You know, he's like, oh, well, it doesn't look like anyone in our circle or in our family and things. Like, they had a hard time. Sure. You know, wanting to hang a piece of work. So how'd you talk them through that? Well, I, I said, you know, um, what if I asked you that about the Mona Lisa? Is it any less significant or important um, a piece of work because, you know, she's a white woman, I assume, <laughs> you know, right. but I don't exactly identify with being white, but I would have no problem hanging the Mona Lisa in my home. Sure. Because the value of it isn't based on her color. Right. It's based on the artist, the artist's intention, the technique, the historical value, you know? So why can't you see that in this work and look beyond the color. So it was a way you got him to understand his own bias that he probably didn't even see. Exactly. Um, uh, happening. A- absolutely. Happens a lot. You know, I always talk about, like, how do you, because 
we talk a lot about racism on the show. I have a very different, I think, definition of racism because I think nearly every, everyone is racist and unless you work, my opinion, mm-hmm. unless you work hard to go against what society tells you, mm-hmm. you're going to believe the, the constructs that are out there, which are basically that black and brown people are not equivalent. I mean, yeah, I mean it, that, that's reinforced every day. Uh, it, overtly, covertly, mm-hmm. consciously, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the narrative that's out there that we seek to change. Um, so it sounds like you're going about it in a way that is trying to make people understand that you know, you've been brainwashed. Yes, I'm reprogramming. Yes. You know, I and and a lot of this is based in legal theories that I did study. Interesting. So you have Brown versus the Board of Education. Yeah. Right? And it showed how detrimental the effects of segregation actually was on blacks black children. Yep. But even as on white children. Absolutely. Because they were not exposed to one another. They yes. couldn't learn. There was no cross cultural dialogue. And also if you keep one segment of the population in poverty with with destroy, destroyed books, um, you know, you had the white school looking great and the black school just, you know, looking awful. You started to give these young black children this this belief that they were inferior. Right. You know, and you reinforce it every day in their everyday life. On TV, you only saw white faces. You go to the toy store, you can only buy white dolls. You know, and that's why when they did the experiment with the dolls in court. Yeah. You know. The black children wanted the, wanted the white dolls. The white dolls, yeah. right? So for me, I want little black girls to want it, it, isn't the black it, Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Taking a little bit off subject, but you know, uh, you see the Little Mermaid now is black. Yes. And there was such a, we had this conversation on another podcast too. There was, there was a, there was an outrage from some people mm-hmm. enough so that the company had to respond. Yeah. Uh, that people were upset that they say, well, Ariel can't be black when she's a made up fictional character. She's but. A fiction. <laughs> and, and not only that, I mean, if you look at stories of mermaids, Mami Wata from Africa goes back way before some of the stories the sailors were coming up with about sirens right. at the time of, you know, exploration. I mean, we've in the Caribbean, we carry those those goddesses with yep. us, you know, through the middle, the slave trade. And we brought those stories. So for us, mermaids, yeah. actually, in fact, we're black, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to take it back right. that far. No, it makes sense. If you want to dig that deep, you know, but they are mythical, fictional creatures. But it goes back to your conversation you had with that gentleman. Why is there a problem that this person is of color? Correct. Why is that your issue? And, and you know, some people, there's a couple different camps mm-hmm. there. There's probably three different camps. There's one different camp, like, never thought about it that way. Yeah. Another camp that will totally deny that that's what it is. Correct. And another one that might just accept it, like, this is how I am. And, and, and they mm-hmm. overtly accept mm-hmm. it. Um, it sounds like you had a lot of people that were in between that didn't consciously know that they were doing it. So I do, it sounds like that you're working to, like you said, change narratives and that's, 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 that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. And to, and to expose people to their inherent bias. Yeah. You know, I mean, perhaps you're not a racist, but check like one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I, and again, I tell people when people get offended, I said, I don't think it's an offensive call. I, I think it's, it's under, it's unless you've worked mm-hmm. and been intentional mm-hmm. all your life to understand your bias, you are going to be racist. Yes, yes, and even amongst uh, black, black people community, too. Absolutely. we have colorism. It's a major issue. There's a major, major issue. I in, mean, in Jamaica, you know, we've got the brown paper bag test. Yep. And, and, and we got it in the United States too. Exactly, and it exists. You know, how curly is your hair? How straight is your hair? Yep. You four C, three B. I mean, no, there's no question. Google natural hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like an entire, an entire argument. I know, right? So. Um, 
I want to talk about a failure that comes out in your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be a personal one too. Um, but what is the what has been your biggest setback or failure in your life, and how did that help you now? Now that you have the the wisdom of hindsight, how did that help you uh, to be who you are today? Um, I guess I would say biggest failure. I feel like I have so many. <laughs> well, think about the one that's in your brain. It could be a personal, whatever. The one that was the most challenging for you to move forward with. Um, well, in the beginning, a lot of people used to want me to speak. Okay. Right? When I would have these shows and do these exhibitions, but I, I just didn't like to be in the forefront or to do any talking. Right. So I would I would hide myself. You know, I would let the artists go and do the speaking. Of course, I would write all the, the essays for the right. show so people understood what my intentions were. But I, I had this, I was terrified of, of public speaking and of sitting there and just, you know, talking to the audience. And I feel like had I gotten over that. Well, how did it, how, did it hurt you once that you can point to that you just thought about? Like, you, like where it could have yeah. created a better opportunity had you actually gone out there and, and, and spoken Definitely, because I and I would say I do, I can't pinpoint one particular opportunity. Okay. But once I started to open my mouth and to to find my voice, you don't seem shy. Well, I've I've learned to control this now. You know, to really. So you have some anxiety about it. Yes. Yes. How did you learn to control it? Because there, are, I'm sure there are others out there that have this same anxiety. They're like, I can't mm-hmm. be the I can't make myself an extrovert. Yeah at certain moments, and not that you are making yourself an extrovert, but you're learning how yeah. to be it when you need to be. Yeah. Tell people, like, what did you do to, because if you're naturally an introvert, mm-hmm. how did you make yourself go out there and I, just start talking and doing things you're not com- yeah. comfortable with, being uncomfortable? Honestly, I started to think of all the things my ancestors endured oh. and why it was important for me to open my damn mouth. Oh. I was like, listen, they're not here to do it. You know, I said, you're going to let down a lot of people who have survived so many things to get to the point where I've actually been created and where I actually have a platform and a voice and people are willing to hear it. So it's time to open your mouth. And I, you know, it just, I just kept saying to me, okay, fine, you're going to tremble. You're going to be nervous. You're going to keep, you know, moving your hands or whatever. You're going to have these nervous ticks. Just, just speak. And right. just speak from the heart, you know, let your passion out and tell people exactly what it is that you're trying to, 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 to get across, which was this idea of equality and humanity for all people. Right. So once I just kind of tapped into that, it, it just kind of just flowed from there. I, I almost forgot there were people around me. Sure. But it was just, it took years for me to decide that this is what I had to do. And it was at the moment that I was curating a series of shows based on Haitian voodoo. Oh, wow. And Haitian voodoo. Exactly. Tell me, oh, wow, I want to know about this. Go ahead. <laughs> and it was a show called Genesis. Okay. That It was the first show that I did when I opened the gallery in Little Haiti. And I wanted to honor the community. Right. And at the time, there were a lot of botanicas, a lot of, I mean, pra- practitioners in the area. And so I started to do a lot of research. And, you know, really delving into what voodoo consisted of, what it was about. And it was really about honoring your ancestors. At least that's what I took from it. Right. And I think during all that research, I started to, maybe I was imagining that, you know, the ancestors were speaking to me and telling me, keep going, this is the right path. Now open your mouth. Now, you know, tell, tell our stories. We can't do it. 
right? But right. your DNA is filled with our stories. And I remember at the same time I was doing some research about water and showing that water had a memory and it, it keeps the memory of anything that's ever touched. And in your, your body is made up of 75% of water. And it comes from your mother and your mother and your mother and your mother, you know? Right. And I just drew on that and I said, okay, whatever. Maybe they, maybe because of all this research, there were messages coming. Right. You know, and I, I just, I just went with it. Wow. That, that's awesome. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, someone, someone endured a lot for me to be able to, to do what I'm doing today. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so just moving to a few final questions. What if you can talk to your younger self, let's say 20 years back, Mm -hmm. what would you tell yourself now? I would tell her to listen to her instincts. Hmm. You know, when the instinct told you that wasn't a good idea, listen. When the instinct said, now is the time to speak up, open your mouth. And to the extent you're comfortable, can you think about it? Like, like talk about those times. I mean, I think people need to hear that mistakes happen, vulnerabilities happen, because mm-hmm. people might see this, you know, successful black woman that's mm-hmm. doing these amazing things, and I can never do that because I have, I've just made so many mistakes. Okay. I was in a, I made a stupid relationship, I did this and that, and all these things have helped me back. Talk about, I, I think people, talk about those moments. Some moment came yeah. in your head when yeah. you said that to your younger self. Tell me what those moments were that you just had in your head. Ay, there's so many moments. Something uh, happened in your head. What <laughs> first thing that came up in your head? Well, I, you know, part of it was when I first uh, decided, okay, to open a space in Little Haiti. Okay. And everyone's like, this neighborhood's dangerous. Um, no one will ever go there. Uh, you're completely crazy. And I had major players in the Miami yeah. art market saying this, you know, other gallerists. Sure. Were like, she's nuts, you know, for going out there. Um, you know, someone, someone's going to break down the door, you know, anything like that. And, you know, and at that moment, I I mean, I really felt like, what am I doing? Sure. You know, here it is. And I I went out, got a building, everything, put, put money on the line, you know, really put everything into it and thinking to myself, I, this is, this, can this really work? And it was just, just keep, just keep going. You know, I said, how many things have you done in your life? And you've stumbled so many times, but eventually you learned how to walk. Right. You know, so I think that each failure that a person has, they need to examine what it was that caused them to fail and figure out how to correct that behavior. Yeah. You know, I mean, my first exam, law school didn't go so great, <laughs> you know, but. So what exam, so what did you, what, so what are those, what, what did you have to correct? Like, think about a time when you made a fail, like what, because yeah. you, you talked a little bit about it. Uh-huh. But you kind of, you kind of, you held back. I mean, that's what I think, yeah. you know. Well, and so, like, and you, so there was something you've, you've done. Like, I can, I can, I'll, I'll start with me. Mm-hmm. This is easier. Right? So, I, I've had a divorce. Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, that we probably never should have got married. And I was doing things based upon expectations of others. Expectations of what was supposed to be. And, and I realized that those things were in me then. And... I would have told myself, you don't, you don't have to do things for other people, mm-hmm. uh, particularly that. Uh, but at that time, I felt this is what you're supposed to do as, mm-hmm. a, as a good guy or whatever. You're supposed to do it. You're supposed to get married. And it's just, it's, it's, and it's, I guess it's supposed to be this way because, you know, this is, you know, this is just the way it is. Uh, but truthfully, I always knew something was, uh, was not always there. 
and and I take credit for I mean for 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 my failures, and I had many within the relationship. But I learned a lot through that, and learned that you know I had to be more self-aware and be better too. So that that's one of my many many failures. But if you can think about, it doesn't have to be that. But like, when did you have to adjust? And when did you have to adjust personally? Oh, I'm gonna tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, similar situation. I got divorced. Yeah. Right. Those are never fun. But go ahead. Never fun. After 12 years of marriage. Mine was 10. Yeah, and two children. Didn't have kids, thankfully. But yeah. And got divorced. Nothing wrong. Kids are a blessing, but you know what I mean. Kids are kids are great. Yeah, but but they complicate that. Absolutely, it's tough because you're trying to balance. And at that moment, I was at a crossroads. Do I shutter the place and just like? So wait, you got a divorce in the middle of being an entrepreneur? Yes. Oh Lord, have mercy. Yes, yes, and had to redo everything because, you know, we had like an LLC created, and we had to break apart certain assets and businesses and things like that and. It was it was a mess. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and then at that moment, you know, I mean, the economy hasn't been great in the last decade or so. It's just up and this down. Was, this is 2006. Well, no, no, 2006 is when I came here from France. Okay. But the divorce was happening in 2000. Was started 2015 into 2016. Right. And the idea was, okay, do I, what, what do I do now? Right. Right. Because, you know, when you're married, you have a partner. Right. And we did a lot of things together in the business together. Right. Um, everything. You have someone to bounce ideas off of. Um, but, you know, the married me and the person that I am now is very different. Now I've learned to love myself just as much as I would love you. But right. But put myself, I would say, even before that. Yeah. You have to love yourself the most yes. in order to be able to respect and fully love others. And, you know, now finding myself on my own, you feel like you're alone yeah, yeah. when you divorce, right? Do you continue? Right. Do you continue with the gallery? Yes, you have clients, you have artists, you have things going on. And at a moment, I had to basically cut all my artists loose because I said to them, I don't think I'm in the right headspace to be right. able to focus on you. Wow. You know? And I started coming up with different, different ideas. And people were still coming to me wanting work and wanting to do things. And I'm like, how can I make this work? And this is how Yeeling Group became. Wow. Because it started Yeeling Gallery, where I was doing exhibitions, managing artists, doing all of this, this heavy nurturing of talent. Right. And I said, I can't really do that because I need to, you know, focus on me and my children, the situation. And so I said, you know, what? let's transform the business and let's still still sell the art and still deal with, you know, high value items were were added on because people right. were always coming, you know, if you can get art, well, maybe you can get this. Yeah. <laughs> and so from there it was really okay, let's restructure the whole thing. I restructured the entire company. Right. You know, tax attorneys, accountant, redo everything wow. to make sure that it, it functions well, and now it's an entity that's just mine. So you became even stronger from that. I did. That's awesome. I did, and I had to walk into rooms with you know a lot of very important people, and instead of having a husband that he was very, you know, he was a businessman, alpha male, and he would go in and get what he wanted, but here it is now, I have to do that. Right. I said, okay. You summoned your inner alpha. Yeah, my, my full five foot four. I was like, okay, I can do this. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to, you know, take charge and, and say this is how it's going to be. And I had to learn how to say no. Oh, how'd you do that? 
I just kept saying no. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, learn, you learn yes has a cost. Yes. Yes has a huge cost. You know, I started turning down everything just, just to practice saying no. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so everything was no, no, no. But usually individuals that have something great, they don't take no for an answer. So some of those people would come back to me and say, you really want to turn this down? And they'd show me reasons why, you know? And then it would make sense. And I was right. like, you know what? Let's look a little closer to that. But saying no really helps me because then you find out who really supports you. Yeah. You know? You do find that out. Yes. Say no to someone. You see how fast they're like, oh, we don't like her anymore, <laughs> you know? And, I mean, no saves you from a lot of... No saves you from a lot. Even seemingly good opportunities. It's Absolutely. Yeah, no is a, po- is a powerful thing, and it will help you in your life. Yeah. It's what you don't choose to do that will have sometimes the greatest effect on your life, is what mm-hmm. I found. Yeah. Um, so, like, um, I want networking very quick. Mm-hmm. I know I said we're in the last questions, but you, you made me kind of think of another question. It sounds like a lot of your success has been because of the trust you've built with your network. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Talk to people about networking and how, how did you build that? How did you build a network where people would, when you told them no, would fight mm-hmm. to get you to, to, to do something, to give you business? They wanted, to, they wanted you to do it yeah. so bad because they trusted you. How did you, how did, how did you develop that? You know what it was? I had a certain amount of freedom, right? Um, the, the background that I was afforded, especially during the marriage, was a comfortable life. Um, so I was able to just, you know, at that moment, people wouldn't just come up to me to disrespect right away. Right. Because they could feel that, you know, maybe we should, should be a little bit more gentle with her because she, sometimes I've been in positions of power. Right. Right. And so, well, let me start over with that one. But based on, based on a lot of that, I was able to get into certain social circles. Right. Right. Um, I was at the table with billionaires often. My time in France was spent in real estate development for a very big family firm. And so meeting a lot of old money types in Europe. Right. And having to. And in, in France, I will say that the difference is people want to talk to you and see what you're about mentally. And then they start to base their judgments on that. Whereas in the U.S., they look at you and they judge you. That's pretty true, yeah. All right, so over there, they talk to you. They, yeah. they give you a little time to hang yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and when they found out that, well, you know, I could rub two sticks together and make a little fire. Right. They were like, okay, you know, and, and I hung out with a lot of older people because the French population tends to be quite grown up. And right. Billionaires tend not to be 20 years old. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I was around a lot of people like that. And they would encourage me and they would say, you know what, you're smart. And you've got passion, you've got drive. Just just stick with it, you know? And once you get a person to start talking to you, you're good. Yeah. You know? And that, that was really it. And I think that, I mean, education, a little luck with genetics, things like that. And it just, it just kind of... Worked. Sure. Two more questions. So... Um, you have a committee of advisors, mm-hmm. committee of three. Mm-hmm. They can be living or dead. They can be in a comic book. I don't know. It's whatever. Uh, these are people that get to advise you on life personally. Who are these three people? And tell me why. Wow. Hmm. Okay. Let's see. I definitely need a person like Maya Angelou. Okay. Right. To 
keep you grounded, to remind you where you come from, to let you know that you can fly if you spread your wings. Um, when I was young, about maybe it was early teens, I, I had the chance to meet her. She gave a, oh, wow. a talk at um, one of these high schools, and I was in a special program, and we got to go and listen to her speak. And I just remember being extremely moved by her and her you know, her strength. Sure. And then as I got older and I really learned about her background. Oh, she, she, she's awesome, isn't she? Yeah. So I said, you know what? So that would be on my committee. All right. That's then, one. So alive or dead, doesn't matter? Alive or dead. Okay. Say Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, okay. Yeah, because that's where I got the idea of saying no all the time. All right. Yeah. I, he was like, if you're not saying no all the time, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you well, know? And so... Someone like him, plus his time is very valuable. So if I can get him to advise me for about five minutes, that would be great. All right. Then the the next, because I'm a Jamaican, I'm going to say something really cliche. But I'd love to just have Bob Marley around me, right? Bob Marley would have been awesome, yeah. Because, I mean, when you're feeling, feeling, when you're in your feelings, you can throw on legend and just let it, let it ride. Yep. And you go through all the emotions. You know, it's a complete spiritual journey. You feel the pain, you feel the love, and in the end, it's the positive message that endures and have a little fun. So I think those three personalities could really advise me well on how to sustain myself. Uh, I, I, I know I said two more, but actually I have, <laughs> I have just two more, okay. I promise. <laughs> What's an important truth you have that very few people agree with you on? Hmm. That's a tough question. Where do you get these from? Okay. Reading. <laughs> Very few people agree with me on. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, I believe that you can change people's minds and hearts. Hmm. You believe so? I, I do. I do. And now, maybe not every single person, but... You can, you can affect a, a certain change in consciousness by, by dialoguing with someone and allowing them to kind of become empathetic by being around you. Right. You know, like I've, I've, I, I like to be around people that disagree with me, actually. Okay. Because they, they challenge the way that I think, my perspective. And sure. I try to figure out why is it that they disagree? It drives me insane. It's annoying. Of course it is. You know, it's like I've, I've been in a room with a, a, someone that's absolutely racist. Yeah. And saying things that are. You I've know, been in, in your, those rooms, too. Yeah. It gets your blood boiling. And you're like, you know, I'm just going to stay calm. Yep. I'm going to hear exactly what it is. And I'm going to look at all the flaws and what they're saying and under, get to the root of exactly why it is. I'm not right. saying I'm going to change a racist into, you know. But if you can get them to acknowledge their racism then maybe they can go and do the work if yeah. they so choose. Uh, I've had similar experiences, and my approach there is to seek to understand why they have that perspective exactly. <clears throat> and see if there's, there's, no, there's no validity in racism, but mm-hmm. there's always validity in a person's perspective. Correct. Because there's a, there's a reason why they have that belief, mm-hmm. and it's a cognitive error. It's mm-hmm. not a correct belief, mm-hmm. but it could be based on... It's always based on usually some real experience or limited knowledge because of whatever. Absolutely. And, and I think understanding the language of where they come from, and if you can understand and reflect back to them that they're actually not meeting their own values, mm-hmm. 
that's when I've that's when I found some progress. Yes. Generally, yes. I mean that, that's kind of how I approach it. And not only that, you know, when you think about racism, I mean, when we think about racism, we really have to acknowledge that it's a system. Right? Yes. I, I I'm continuously saying that black people in America, at least in the U.S., we cannot be racist. Right. Because we don't control the system and we don't have enough power to, to actually be racist. We can be prejudiced. Yeah. We can have the inherent bias. But, you know, it's it's important to, to get that. And I think, you know, the argument's always like, oh, but if you're doing a show and it's only about black, the black woman. You know, I did a show in 2015, I believe it was, about a black woman's legacy. Sure. And everyone's, but the show's only about black women. And, you know, how is that? different from someone that would do a show about just white culture because we get that 99 percent of the time correct I'm i like, mean well, there's a story that needs to be told that's been kept out of the history correct and, that, that, and that, there's the issues that the stories are not mm-hmm. being told or they're not being told truthfully correct i mean correct. and that's why people need to understand so it yeah. and that's why it's similar to why people say black lives matter Absolutely. though every everything gets, everyone matters of course everyone matters but this moment black people are having the trouble right and we're just <laughs> making sure that you understand that our lives because the, the, the truth is what they're trying to say is black lives should matter and they don't Correct. <laughs> right. That's really what people are saying. Mm-hmm. And and people that get worked up in the fence saying, like, why are you saying only black lives matter? No, we're just trying to say black lives actually matter. Yeah, like, and they should matter just like your life matters because everybody's lives matter. Yeah. Black people are actually human. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> That's what we're saying. Actually human. Yes. You know, and, and we see it today. Right. And yeah. we turn on the TV and 45 is just going on. It and goes on off. About, that. He's good about, about the human and, 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 and vermin and, and, and infestations and, and this kind of talk that that just, you know, delineates an entire group of people to some subspecies. Yep. Right? Yeah. I mean, we're seeing how dangerous that is. It's extremely dangerous. Right? Because you don't think twice about stepping on a cockroach. No, you don't. Unless you're like a Buddhist or or you believe in reincarnation and you're like, oh, that could be my my mean uncle. (laughs) You know, you might not step on it. But in our society, it's nothing to get rid of a pest. Right. Right? And so language is important. Language is important. Patterns are mm-hmm. important, what you say, absolutely, and what you allow, what you tolerate, all of that absolutely. is important. Absolutely. And when I do shows about black people and people say, oh, but you're being racist because only... I cannot be racist. Right. It is impossible for me to be a racist in the United States of America under our current system. I do not hold political office. <laughs> I did not create this system. Right. I, I can't, I can't uh, prevent you from prospering based on your color. You know, but they're the majority of the country, or should I say the, the, the Caucasians, can <laughs> in this country. You know, the system was designed that way. Correct. That's a hard conversation, though. It's a very hard conversation, but I have it often. And you have it with billionaires. I, 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 apl- I applaud you for that. I do. I do. And, you know, they're like, oh, she's not afraid of us and our money. And there's some, I found, I found there's some respect. I have some friends who are, you know, I have quite a few that are, that are, that are Trump supporters. And, you know, but I tell them very directly. The conversation we have now, I have with them. And I think they're surprised. Like, oh, wow. Because I think there's some respect from that. And I believe, I hope there's some thoughts that I've at least challenged in their mind to look at these things differently. I mean, that's my that's my hope like you. I mean, that we're at least trying to get them to question the assumptions and narratives they have in their mind that aren't true about about black and brown people. Absolutely. And I also think that, you know, you can be an example. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because I'm doing things that people like me just don't do. Or they assume you don't do. Correct. Because that's the narrative. Correct. But you're you're showing that 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 narrative is not true. Final final question here. Uh, You have a billboard Google ad that is your saying, your beliefs 
whatever. What does that say oh, and I know why? exactly what that says. Well, that, and well, because I'm in the arts, yeah. I always believe that my, my hashtag, I don't know what you want to call it, slogan, okay. what does your art say about you? What does it say about the things you value? Yeah. You know? And if that's really empty and it's just pretty pictures, you need to start on over again. Wow. Show me your art, I'll show you your value. Correct. All right. That's, Absolutely. That's a good slogan. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Carla Ferguson. It was a pleasure you. to have you on.